This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book on the epistle to the Colossians and number 14 of that series. We have had before us, for one or two of these meetings, the great central section of this epistle, which makes it a distinctive note under the heading of Beware. Now, in chapter 1, the Apostle uh, hints that he's going to deal with that aspect. In verse 28 he says, Whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom. Warning is always a sign, of course, of some element of danger. He then, in chapter 2, speaks about the full assurance of understanding that comes by acknowledging the all-sufficiency of Christ in all things, the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He then goes on to speak about the practical outworking of that truth and proceeds with verse 8 to give words of warning against certain snares and correctives against them. Now I won't go over that again because if we do, most of our time will be occupied in a review. But I think we should be wise if we, as believers, would occasionally do it for ourselves. At one period of our experience, we may be vulnerable from one direction. We may grow out of it. We may be delivered from it. It may lose its power. But that doesn't mean to say that all the wiles of the devil have been experienced by us. He's got plenty more. And so we may be exposing ourselves to attack from another point of view. So keep this chapter before you once now and again as a little sort of possible unpleasant medicine that may nevertheless be very wise. And you'll notice the corrective all the time is Christ. Uh, we looked upon the first thing about philosophy and tradition, the rudiments of the world, and he says there are one thing about it is they're not after Christ. And further down he says, you're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing the other, but you're not holding the head, which is Christ. So it's a very simple thing, isn't it? And yet so profound, that as he sums it up, we belong to a calling and a company where Christ is all and in all. But it's so simple that we can lose its meaning by that very fact. And so it needs over and over again to be developed, to be pointed to be contrasted, to be compared, to be sort of meditated upon. Well, now I think we will go on into chapter 3 and see the way in which he proceeds to teach us after that great word of warning has been given. <laughs> the very last words of chapter 23 show you the futility of all this uh, that he's been exposing. Because the word satisfying is a cognate word to the word ye are complete in him. He says you are complete in him. In him dwells all the fullness. And he says, you see what you're doing? You're only satisfying, filling, fulfilling the poor old flesh. Always oh, he says, how sad. He turns away from neglecting the body, verse 23, to verse 5, where he says, mortify your members. There's a great difference between neglecting and purposely, conscientiously mortifying, which we'd have to examine. A person may be negligent with regard to his feeding, and he may suffer, or he may conscientiously 
abstain from certain foods and be the better for it. There's all the difference between neglecting and purposely doing something because you see it to be right. But he doesn't uh, proceed to that matter first. We have here in these, these four verses a very wonderful interposition. Now most of us here in this chapel know the great doctrine uh, uh, called conditional immortality. And uh, as I was in correspondence with Mr. Skeets, who is the president of that um, and the editor of that magazine, he wrote to me, I said, you know, I have a feeling that I can quite sympathise with it, that uh, when you are running a crusade against any particular thing, you have a tendency, in order that you may make yourself clear and understood, to overstate some things. We all do it. Or at least I may say we all do it. We must impress upon somebody the principle of right division. So we bang away at right division until you usually think that was the name of Christ himself who loved us and gave himself for us. See? Now I said, I've heard some of your people in their endeavour to cut out any idea that there's a conscious existence after death that have spoken about a believer who's died that they're as dead as mutton. You see? Finished. Well, I said, you know, I have a feeling that we're putting out our hand to stay the ark of God stressing one thing and forgetting or having a blind eye to others. Take, for instance, the passage in John's Gospel. It says that he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me uh, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. That now, at this moment, he's passed from death into life. When the moment comes for him to die in this world, does he walk back again then from that life into which he's passed? Is it all annihilated? I'm asking the question. Or again, Paul writes to the believer and said, your outward man is perishing, but your inward man is being renewed day by day. He says, so here, the renewing. Similar thought. Renewed in the spirit of your mind. Ephesians. Now, does that renewing stop? If any man be in Christ, there's a new creation. Has that new creation gone to pieces and perished? Don't you see they're legitimate questions, aren't they? I said to him, I've examined every reference to the word sleep as a symbol of death. And personally, I've come to the conclusion that it is not used indiscriminately. The ungodly perish. Awful thing to say, but that's what the scripture says. But the believer in Christ falls asleep in him. And when he's raised from the dead, he awakes out of sleep. Now, you're not going to give away truth because you stand for that. Leave it that, that way. Now, I said, look at this passage in front of you. Let's look at it again for ourselves. Verse 3 and 4. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Can you imagine that? Think of having your attention drawn to that for the first time. Your life, now, not in the future. Your life is hid. Or it's a perfect tense. It has become hid. It's been done. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Surely that's stressing the safest possible hiding place that even God can conceive. That life of yours is untouchable. Your life is hid. When Christ who is your life shall be manifested, you will be manifested with him in glory. 
Can't you leave them where God has placed them? Asleep in him, no consciousness of the passing of time, hours, days, months, centuries, makes no odds, but don't block them clean out because you fear that somebody may take an advantage and think that their loved ones are looking over the parapets of glory down onto this world and all that business. So I mention it to you, so that you also may not persist in one error because you want to beat another. That is only playing the evil one's game. Now we look at this again. First of all, we have in these um, four verses the, the, this little interval, marvellous little interval. Then he picks up in verse 5 and um, practically gives you the way in which we may manifest that this has happened to us, mortify, lie not one to another, put off these things, put on. And then after that, in verse 12, he begins to give, give you this practical outworking. He speaks about kindness, he speaks about long-suffering, he even goes as far as to say it's possible you may have a quarrel one with another, this is right down on the common basis of everyday life. This is bearing upon it, right down to verse 17. And then, he doesn't finish, he's still at it. He says, I'll have a word to say to wives, and to husbands, to children, to fathers, to servants, and to masters. The one thing you could never say about this glorious truth, that while it stresses heavenly places, and speaks about mysteries that need a great deal of careful uh, consideration, it does at least get down to what people call brass tacks, It speaks about your home life. It speaks about your business life as all a part of the walk that is worthy of our high calling. Well now let's look, shall we, the way in which he introduces these four verses. If ye then be risen. In verse 20 of the preceding chapter he took the other line. If ye be dead. It's all with Christ, you notice. If ye be dead, with Christ. If he be risen, with Christ. Your life is hid, with Christ. You'll be manifested, with Christ. Oh, that's the thing we want to remember. We are with him and he's with us all the way through. Whether it be life or death, whether it be sleeping or waking, whether it be here in this veil of tears or in the glory, one note sounded all the time. You're never alone. You're never apart from him. And he is our guarantee whether it be in the pilgrim pathway or whether it be the presentation without fault in that glorious day that's coming. Then, so that we may all who are listening together shall understand a little bit more intimately what this means, how can he say we, we are dead? How can he say we are risen? Uh, what method is there adopted by God? Uh, how does this come about? Supposing I ask you to consider one verse in Isaiah 53. In that Isaiah 53, he says, um, I think perhaps we better turn to it so that we can see for ourselves and quote it exactly. It's one of those jewels that we had in the Old Testament, known to most of us. But in Isaiah 53, it says, the last verse, 12th verse, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Those words indicate a conqueror, a victor, dividing the spoil. 
And they echo the opening of this section where it says, uh, verse 13 of chapter 52, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And they were going to be astonished at his humiliation. They were equally going to be astonished at his exaltation and glory. Therefore I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. That's the bit I wanted to get to. Now that word numbered is translated in the New Testament reckoned. Or numbered. Doesn't matter, but reckoned will give you another thought. Here is this sinless, spotless, holy, righteous Son of God reckoned. Reckoned with the transgressors. Well, he did no sin. He knew no sin. But he died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. He was reckoned with the transgressors. He bare the sin of many. Well, now you see, that is a principle evidently that God works on. If God could reckon his spotless son among the transgressors, and then that terrific wrath of God descended, and he was bruised for our iniquities, he was wounded for our transgressions, he died for our sins. If God could visit him simply because he reckoned him to be among the transgressors, how shall he not also visit us if he reckons us among the redeemed? Oh, it works both ways. Shall we get a little thought about that reckoning from the classic passage on this subject, Romans the sixth chapter? And if anybody says, I know all about that, we'll say, thank God, let everybody else have a chance. But to know all about it is beyond our capabilities, I think, at the moment. Romans 6. Now, in the fifth chapter, he starts speaking about the one man, verse 12. That's the first time Adam comes into the story. Outside, in Romans 3, 2, 3, 4, it's Abraham. Outside, it's the law given from Mount Sinai. Now we come inside, and Abraham's forgotten, and Adam comes forward. The law of Sinai is not there. It's the law of sin and death that came into the world long before Sinai was mentioned. And he ends up by saying, in spite of that fact, verse 21 of the preceding chapter, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And the sequel to that is not chapter 6 or chapter 7, but the sequel to that is chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. But this writer of Romans knows he's got a good many hard questions to answer. He can see forming in the mind a good many objections, so he gives you four of them. Chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And then he picks it up again and says in verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. And in chapter 7, verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. And then finally he says, um, verse 13, Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. So he deals with them at a stroke like that, one after the other, 
And when he's got rid of them, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation. But now we come back to Romans 6. He says, how shall shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He says, look, brother, you are not saved because you changed your religion, because you changed your opinion. If you're saved, you're reckoned by God to have died. And if you've died to sin, how can you live in it? It's a contradiction of terms. Well, then you may say, well, how did I die to it? Because I'm still living. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptised into Jesus Christ were baptised into his death? Now, whether this involves and includes water baptism or not, doesn't matter. It may have included it in the Acts of the Apostles period. But the one thing that was necessary to remember is, water or no water, this baptism was not a cleansing like a sprinkling in the tabernacle times, but it was a definite a burial. It was a symbol of the fact that you were united, united with Christ in his death and in his burial and then going on to his resurrection. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That, like as Christ was raised, you see, he won't leave you there. You're now going to be raised with Christ. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we had been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Now we shall come across in Colossians and the parallel passage in Ephesians, the idea of putting off the old man. But that's not exactly what it says. It doesn't say put off the old man like that. It speaks about the former conversation of the old man. It speaks about the old man's deeds. Now you may be, put, be able to put off some of the deeds of the old man and you may turn your back on some of the conversation of the old man but you're absolutely hopeless and powerless to put off the old man himself. That alone could be accomplished by the work of Christ on the cross. So we have, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be not merely destroyed as our rendered inoperative. A spoke put in the wheel that henceforth you should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed or justified from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, he got so far as that. If this has happened in the purpose of God, we believe that we shall also live with him. The one involves the other. God has never gone out of his way to bring about this scheme of redemption and justification without including the glorious end to live again in his presence. Otherwise he might have let you be. So he goes on to say, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, died no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. You say, what's that got to do with me? He says, likewise, Reckon ye yourselves, here's our word reckon. God has reckoned it. You reckon it. And that's the basis upon which this all rests. Take God at his word. However strange it may seem to you, he has reckoned his holy son among the transgressors. He'll reckon you, unholy one, among the saints, if you'll only believe what he says. And he's just as true to the one side as he is to the other. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now, since the dominion of indwelling sin has been broken, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. He doesn't say you'll never make mistakes. But you'll no longer have to bow to a dominion you cannot break. That ye should obey it in the lust thereof, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as, what? As those that are alive from the dead. You don't do it in your own strength. Every moment you now live in the Christian faith, you are practically saying, I died with Christ to these things. I'm now a new creature. I now walk in newness of life. You say, oh, I've got a good many things that remind me. Oh, so you may have. But God knows that too. And if he can look upon you and say, you are now in my sight in Christ, won't you take the same attitude? Are you going to be more independent? No, you dare not be, for that is fatal. So he says, yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Here comes the word dominion again. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. So you've been translated from the dominion of law, and you're now under grace. You died with Christ. You are reckoned to have been buried with him. You are also reckoned to have been raised with him. And now you can take that stand. It's not a fiction. It's a fact in the estimate of God, and it's based upon that wondrous work of grace that we associate with the sacrifice of Christ. Well, that may be an old story with some, but it's a story that needs to be repeated many, many times so that we may see the basis of God's dealings with us. It is the word uh, that we stress, the word reckon. He was reckoned with the transgressors. We, the transgressors, by the mercy of God, can now be reckoned with him, the righteous one. Well, now the next is this. We're coming back to Colossians chapter 3. If you then be risen with Christ, you see, we touched those words and it started us off to say, well, how do we know we are risen or what does it mean? What's to be the sequel? Oh, there is a response on our part. Seek. Set. Seek and set. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. That will not earn you the position. It's only possible if the position is already taken by you. But he says, we have to deal with evidences. As I've reminded you before, Paul seems to have uh, said to the Thessalonians that he knew their election of God. Well, you say, how did he know that? Did God give him a secret information? He said, no. I'm only looking at the way in which you receive the word of God. You received it not as it is the word of man, but the word of God that effectually worketh in them that believe. You suffered for it, you stood for it, so that I needn't even say a word, because from you has sounded out the word of the Lord. He said, that's evidence enough for me that you're the elect of God. So you see here, it's one thing for us to say, oh, I believe in this principle of, of um, reckoning, and I reckon to have died with Christ, I reckon to have been buried with him, I reckon to have been raised with him, and somebody says, well, I wouldn't have believed it if he hadn't told me, because the way you're living and the way you're walking and the way you're thinking now, you see, that's where we bring discredit on the truth. We can't make ourselves die with Christ or be raised with him, but we can at least seek to walk worthy of such a calling. And if he's delivered us from the dominion of it, 
And he says to them, why don't you yield yourselves now to God? You once did the other side. That shows there is a possibility now open to us that wasn't open before. So, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek. Uh, isn't there a scripture in the Gospels that said, where a man's heart is, there is his treasure also? Perhaps I've misquoted it. Perhaps it says, where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. Perhaps I've misquoted it again. I think it goes work, works both ways, you know, somehow, don't you? So, you can divide yourself up as you like, which side you like to take, you'll find it comes to the same thing. If you say that Christ is all to you, and all that you're doing is grubbing about down here, you won't forget the story of Bunyan's man with a muckrake, will you? There was an angel with a bright crown holding out to him. He never saw him. The man with a muckrake. If ye be risen with Christ, what then? Seek those things which are above. While we got the same story on a lower platform of Abraham who so believed God's word with regard to the future, that he was willing to dwell in a tent and forego all the things that once were precious to him. For he looked, he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And they were giving evidence, it says, that they had believed God. And they had an opportunity to return if they'd wished, but they didn't. They were convinced. And so they were ready to not neglect themselves, but willing to go without, put off, put away, or as the word is crystallized, mortify. So here, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek. Seek what? Those things which are above. So now our affections and our thoughts are turned to where, not where Christ once walked the earth. I, I, I pondered years ago whether it would be worth doing to escape and scrape and save and go to one brief visit to Palestine. Fancy to stand where Christ has stood. And then I saw a photograph of one of the gates of Jerusalem with a huge poster, Eat Peak Friends Pat Cake Biscuits. And I thought, goodness me, that's what I'm going to find when I get there. I think I'll rather keep my illusions here. And so we have to say to the little child that sings the hymn, I wish I'd been there, when, and I wish that his hands had been placed upon me. Or you say, you haven't lost anything. To know the risen, seated Christ is just as glorious, if not even more so, than to have come into physical contact with him when he walked this earth as a man of sorrows. We've still got the word which ministers him to us in the fullness of God's grace. So here, we seek those things that are above where Christ sitteth. Now the word sit does not mean rest. There's hardly a reference in the New Testament where the word sit means simply to sit down and have a rest. But many times it means to sit in a place of authority. I suppose you know that the word cathedra gives us the word cathedral. And a cathedral is a place where the bishop has a cathedra. Oh, you say, well, what's a cathedra? A cathedra is a seat. In that cathedral there is the bishop's throne or chair. And he speaks ex cathedra, he speaks out of the chair. And when he speaks ex cathedra, he's supposed to speak with the voice of God. There is the idea. Our Saviour said that the scribes of the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Well, there wasn't a seat there. I mean, I've sat in the seat that's strapped on Avon that's supposed to have been Shakespeare's. But there wasn't a seat in Jerusalem that Moses sat on, not a visible, not a visible chair. 
But they assume the authority of Moses. They sit in Moses' seat. Oh, whatsoever they tell you, you do. But he says, they say and do not, so don't you listen to them. So there's the stress there on this thought of the seat. seat. And you know that there's one epistle which is the epistle of the seated Christ, and that is the epistle to the Hebrews. So, although we may know it so well, I must at least give everyone an opportunity who's listening to this recording, an opportunity to just canvas this question, because the seated Christ is so very much to do with our own high calling. Now, this epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 1. We don't get further than the third verse before we meet the seated Christ. I think we'll read the first three verses. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, then one leap, right away from the cross, no reference to the burial, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where this epistle would place Christ. It doesn't minimise his sufferings, it stresses it. But it stresses the fact that he who died not only rose again, he ascended and he sat down. Shall we go further then? Chapter 4. In the 14th verse, seeing then that we have a high, great high priest that is passed into the heavens, and if you're looking at the original, you'll see the word to pass is prefaced by the little word that means through, diakamai. Not merely passed into the heavens, but passed through the heavens, because he's ascended up above all heavens. We have a great high priest that has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. There he sits at the right hand of God, but he remembers us, and he rem- remembers our pathway, and he gives us that consolation and assurance that if nobody else understands it, he does, for he's walked this path and knows the temptations that we are uh, meeting day by day. And then we go to chapter 7. He says in verse 22, but... Uh, verse 23, and truly they were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. The moment Aaron was appointed to be high priest, there was a reference to his successor. But this man, that's Christ, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable or better an intransmissible priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for us. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. So chapter 8 sums it up and says, Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. We might as well get the two other references while we're about it. Chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, 
after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at the emphasis there in that one epistle of the fact that Christ is seated, and seated in heavenly places, seated at the right hand of God. There's one thing that's never said in Hebrews. It never once says that any believer can associate himself with Christ there. That's reserved for the epistle to the Ephesians, which says that they're not only died with him, not only raised with him, but seated with him where he sits, at the right hand of God. That is the extraordinary character of this high calling, differing from all others. But Hebrews has given you a glimpse of what it means to be seated at the right hand. So Colossians, we come back again. We can say that's to occupy the thoughts and minds. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth, on the right hand of God. Now the next word, set your affection on things above. This is not the ordinary word for affection. This is the word that gives us our English word phrenology. It's to do with your bumps. People used to say so, but they don't say so now. You may have all sorts of bumps on your head and very little intelligence underneath it. Yeah, a man's brain power is not to be uh, gauged by the size of his hat band. But that's the word. It's not your, not love and affection. But it means, if you can use the expression, your bent. We use that about a person, don't we? Say, oh, he's bent, his music. You can't get him away from it, you know. Every minute of the day is on this. That's his bent. Somebody else has got a bent for something else. Well, I wonder whether some people are saying to you, you know, he's crazy over Christ. It wouldn't be a bad plan, would it? He's just got, he's just got it, he's just got it on the brain that Christ is seated at the right hand of God and that's where his all is. You know, they say, he goes without any amount of things and he dreams, he never thinks he's missed anything. Why? He said he's so intoxicated with the love of God through Christ that he doesn't know he's going without. Oh, that's a good, that's the idea. That's it. Mortify your members which are upon the earth. Don't try to do it, because if you do it, it'll be a false thing. But when you look back, you say, oh, these, these people thought I was going without, but I, never, I wasn't conscious. I, I had no sense of being a martyr. A person who's going in for martyrdom, well, he's on the wrong end of the story. It's the other people who make you become a martyr. You don't walk out and say, please, will anybody martyr me? You say, please, I'm standing for the truth of God. Do what you will. They do the martyrdom, not you. See, it's your friends who have to be the martyrs when you take that line because you begin to impose it upon them. So we have, set your affection on things above. Now the epistle to the Philippians uses this expression, I think it is 11 times, this word affection. Only there it will be translated mind. Now I feel sure that you would say to me, well let's have them, rather than say, I'm, I'm only telling you there are 11 and pass on, because this is very near to our own hearts, isn't it? All right, shall we turn back to Philippians then, and see what it has to say about this word 
which we have said means your mind, your bent, rather than your affection. Philippians 2. Here we have two references. I think we'll read the first verse. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Here's where the word comes in. Like-minded. One mind. Now what sort of one mind is this? Does this mean to say you're an obstinate person? You've just got one thing in your mind and that's all that matters. Well, it may be very true, but it may be very wrong. So let's look at the next reference to see what this one mind is. But I think we'll approach the next reference by reading the next few verses. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in loneliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. That is not what it says, because it goes on to say that that's what Christ did. Well, Christ didn't esteem that I was better than he was. That's intolerable. Now, it doesn't say that here. I'll give you a revised translation. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem the affairs of others of more consequence than their own. That was the mind that was in Christ Jesus, who laid aside the glory for our sakes, not because he thought we were better. And strictly speaking, it wouldn't be honest on the part of some of us to say that we think that everybody we know is better than we are. Would you say that, friends? Well, I'll honestly tell you I wouldn't. I believe I'm better than some people. No objection? You see, it doesn't, we're not to be telling untruth and, and belittling ourselves and humbling ourselves beyond that which is true. But it says, even though you're a better person than the other man, think of the mind of Christ, who laid aside his glory. He esteemed the affairs of others. What he said, look not every man on his own things, he goes on to explain but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind, always back again, here's the one mind that matters, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not a thing to be grasped that to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, stooped right down to the death of the cross, you see, that's the mind. Oh, if we've got that mind, Colossians says, set your affection on things above. If you've got that mind, well, that's what it will do, won't it? Well, now we'll take it a stage further. Chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. He's been speaking about the prize of the high calling and says, Now let us therefore as many as be perfect. And possibly it reads, Let us therefore as many as would be perfect because he said even he himself wasn't perfect. But here is in front of you, Be thus minded. Be thus minded. What minded? Always says, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. He says, I borrow that from the history of my own people in the wilderness. Don't you remember they came out of Egypt and then they turned back in heart. They appointed a captain and said, would it be best if he led us back to Egypt? We're getting sick of this matter. We remember the onion and the garlic and the fish which we did eat in Egypt. See? They turned back in heart. He said, all forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth unto the things which are before. Let this, therefore, let us, therefore, as many as would be perfect, who would go on to the end, 
be thus minded. And if in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, where we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. So now we've got this stress here. Now verse 19. He says in verse 17, Brethren, be followers together of me, and walk, mark them which walk, so as you have us, for an example, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Are they unbelievers? Well, would a church who reached such a high standard as Philippians need to be warned not to follow the ungodly idolaters with whom they lived? Is it not rather the carnal, fleshly Christian people? He said, um, they, what they're doing is just edit, making themselves enemies of the, what the cross of Christ stands for, whose end is destruction. Now that word destruction is the word in Hebrews, perdition. And you remember the two foci in Hebrews, let us go on to perfection or we'll draw back to perdition. Here's the two words in Philippians 3. We're going on to perfection, he says, we're not reached it, but there is the possibility of stopping and turning back to perdition. And as we found the first occurrence of this word in Matthew's Gospel is translated waste. It's not destruction, it's not hell, it's not Gehenna, but it's just sheer waste. A Christian can have a wasted life and simply be saved like Job puts it by the skin of his teeth. So whose end is perdition? Whose God is their belly? That's plain speaking, but that's where they are. Do you know someone whose God was his belly and he lost his birthright? And his name is mentioned in Hebrews, Esau. He said, that's what you're doing, you're following him. Whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. And the contrast, our citizenship exists as a glorious fact in heaven. And that's where our hopes are and our thoughts are directed, where Christ sits. Then the last reference is in chapter 4, verse 2. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odeus, that was a lady, and I beseech Syntyche, that was another lady, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, that that's another lady for its feminine, help those women which labour with us. I don't want to be uncharitable, but all there was some bother going on in Philippi. And it was this that he wanted to stop. Always said, do, do remember that you can spoil this wonderful witness. You odious. Do watch what you're saying and doing, Syntyche. Be of the same mind in the Lord. It may cause, it may give you a certain amount of grief. It may make you give up some things that you think are your rights. But what are your rights when you compare it with the Son of God and that he did not think it to be something to be grasped at? to retain his equality with God that made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and stooped for your salvation. That's the thing, isn't it, friends, at last. So come back again to Colossians chapter 3. And we shall have to bring our study once more to a conclusion. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are, are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And then he says, For ye are dead, better still ye die, that we've seen how in Romans 6. And your life is hid 
with Christ in God. Notice the parallels here. Your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life shall appear, that's the opposite of the word hid, ye shall also appear with him, not in God, but in glory. So here's the whole thing. That is the hope before this church. The manifestation with him in glory. I think we should have to give attention to that when we meet together next time so that we may understand this phase of the hope which is stressed here by the Apostle by these words. But you see, we've been leading up to it, these steps. And it so emphasises the place that the mind occupies so that I draw your attention once more to the fact that it speaks about the renewing of your mind. And in verse 10, you have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge. The mind. The knowledge. The spirit of your mind, as it says in Ephesians. The beginning of the new man. That which is going on when the outward man is perished and finished. So we'll hold all the truth, shall we, friends? We won't barter one piece of truth to bolster up and justify another. Uh, it may be a difficult thing to do and we should never be perfectly certain that we're completely 100% right. But at least we'll have that as our goal and test everything, everything, every one of these tape recordings, test them all by the book and test them all by the book that's opened. Not merely quotations that you make on the spur of the moment because there's every possibility you will make a little slip somewhere or you won't notice the next verse. So may the Lord give us grace that we may be worthy of being numbered among those who he said were more noble than those in Thessalonica. For they not only received with readiness the word that was spoken, but they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things which were taught them was so. That I think is a, a ministry that we covet and covet rightly.